You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Well, hello and a very warm welcome to Middle East Analysis. Well, very warm welcome. It's very cold here, I have to say. I'm quite miserable, actually, with this awful winter weather, even though it's fairly mild by our UK standards. I wonder if that's a view shared by Dr. Harry Hagopian, our usual studio guest, who I have to say it's an absolute pleasure to be sitting opposite. Harry, do you feel the cold? Likewise, uh, James, it's a pleasure to be here and to do another podcast with Middle East analysis. Is it cold? Yes, it's cold, but it's not uh, miserably cold. The weather is still okay, I think, compared to the political weather, which is more miserable because our listeners are fully aware, I suspect, there were fireworks in the House of Commons with uh, the Brexit vote and what to do and what not to do. So we're at sixes, at sevens. Parliament is involved. The executive is trying desperately to keep its head above water. Uh, Everybody has an opinion on it. And the best opinion is to say that nobody has an opinion because nobody knows where we're going with this. Wow. And it took us, let me have a look, one minute to get on to Brexit. (laughs) <laughs> for, for a podcast on Middle East, North Africa region. But well, it's the setting. It's a reality. It is, it is. I mean, politics is also reality. And you can't really uh, talk about uh, the Middle East, North Africa or Gulf regions without also being aware that uh, in your own back door, uh, there are issues that are quite momentous, that are quite epic, that are quite existential. Because what happens to this country, I believe, is very, very important in the next few months because the way we define our relations with the European Union, the way we define our relations with the wider world and the way we become more isolationist or less isolationist would have a lot of impact not only on our trade, not only on whether Jaguar and Rover stay in the country or move out, but also in terms of human beings because at the end of the day we forget that politics is not only a game being played by different politicians and MPs in the House of Commons, but it is something that touches the very core of human beings, whether those human beings are British citizens, whether they're East Europeans or West Europeans for that matter. Everybody has a stake in the outcome of uh, uh, Brexit. We plunged into something with little thought, and now finally we've woken up at the last minute, the last mile, that, wow, this is serious. What are we going to do and how are we going to deal with it when there are so many uh, disparate and dissimilar forces that are more centrifugal than centripetal in this particular case? Well, I'm going to give you a vote. Well, I say a vote. It's a vote polling one person as to whether... I have your confidence to carry on and try and somehow meander my way back onto the Middle East, North Africa. You meander away, James. I think that's good because otherwise you're right to say that this podcast would turn into a Brexit podcast. Well, moving on. <laughs> moving on. I when, we, when I was thinking about this podcast and, and, you know, because it's been two months, all the huge number of things that, that we could talk about, although obviously not in a timely fashion, so we have to be a little bit creative. I started in my thinking to loosely title it Hot Region Cold War. Now, 
What's that? You might think. I'll tell you what it is. That's an interesting hot region called war. Where did you come up with this expression from? Well, I was thinking of the US, partly prompted by um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's tour that's been much written and talked about, and what its policy is in various Middle Eastern countries. The obvious, you know, pulling troops out of Syria. We'll come on to that. And I was just, Good luck with that if you call that a policy, James. <laughs> well, OK. Yeah, I'll take your point. And the various other huge seismic things going on, some of which are, are very much at stalemate. I was thinking of, obviously, you know, the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council and the situation with the crisis and so forth, the stalemate there. Uh, you might disagree, you might have plenty to add on that. Blockade of Yemen, so on and so forth. I was thinking about Russia's policy because I read a really interesting article that you tweeted, actually, about Mm -hmm. what Russia's general and wide policy might be in the Middle East region. That was by a Carnegie scholar, wasn't it? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, And it it sort of had six bullet points as to what the policy is. Uh, It seems to me to be maintaining economic interests. And I thought, well, what can we do? You know, we've got Russia getting more involved in some things. America getting more involved in others and less involved. We have this tour of the Secretary of State that has been described in all kinds of odd ways, like a long and strange tour, I read in one news outlet, anti-Iran tour, if you want to badge it that way. A little bit incoherent, perhaps? Well, I'm struggling with it. I'm, 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 trying, to work, I'm trying to work out what the fruits or otherwise are, and, or, or the damage, depending on yeah. how you want to look at it. So maybe we'll start there. I do want to, to look at the US and Russia, and if you like this sort of what, in, in a sense, is like a sort of superpower game of chess over the Middle East, North Africa region, the Gulf states, as we've talked about before. So let's start with Mike Pompeo's tour. Okay, let me start with that. But before I do that, let me also address myself to what you said about a hot region and a cold war. Because when you say cold war, memory takes us back to the Soviet times, the 60s and 70s, way before the Soviet socialist republics uh, disintegrated. And we now have a Russian federation and Mm. we have all those other countries that have become independent, whether they were the ones within the... Uh, Soviet uh, system or close by in East Europe. So in a sense, that is the Cold War that immediately uh, comes to mind. I believe at the moment I would be far more comfortable by saying that it's a hot region. If we're talking about the Middle East, North Africa and Gulf regions, that it is much more of a hot region with some hot wars that are... Uh, basically being fought out by proxies rather than by the United States and by Russia. Russia and the United States are being pretty much the two big arbiters who are using their influence, their money, their military prowess in order to navigate uh, movements in those countries one way or another. And of course, uh, then there are the proxies and there are different proxies who are operating in different countries. So if you take Libya, for instance, if you take Syria, if you take Yemen, if you take Lebanon, if you take all those countries, then there are different people who are playing and who have some sort of a stake in what happens uh, to those countries, hence the stagnation, hence the stalemates, hence the tensions, and hence the hot region and in a, in a hot war that is being fought out, sometimes violently and sometimes less violently. So in that brings me also to the point you raised, which is U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's visit to the region, where he visited nine countries, the 60s, 
six GCC countries as well as uh, other countries in the uh, MENA region. Of course, one of those was Egypt. And Egypt has now become, for some reason, the receptacle the symbol of a talk by either a U.S. president or a U.S. secretary of state. I could think of Condoleezza Rice during the uh, Bush administration. I yeah. could think of President Obama, who talked uh, in very hopeful terms about new departures in uh, Egypt. And now we have Mike Pompeo, who actually uh, spoke at the American University of Cairo, which is one of the best universities in the whole region, uh, perhaps to be matched by the American University of Beirut. And in a sense, I use the word incoherent because it was a shambolic talk that really didn't say much, that threw in some of what people would expect an American Secretary of State to say, perhaps because that's what he believes in or perhaps because that's what he thinks his boss, President Donald Trump, believes in. One, it was praising Israel to the skies. Two, it was condemning Iran to the skies. Three, not mentioning anything at all about human rights in the region. So the abysmal state of human rights, not least in Egypt, where there are 60,000 people prisoners because of human rights violations, according to the regime. It's a regime that has a very almost babyish face in the person of the president of the country now, but which is doing enormous things to shut down anybody who dares say anything that the regime is not happy with, or by regime, I also mean the military. Mm. So the first point was, let's praise Israel. The second point, let's excoriate or condemn Iran. The third point is, let's not touch anything about human rights across this whole MENA Gulf region. We won't even mention in our talk at the AUC uh, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, for instance. And the fourth point was, let's try and destroy Obama's legacy because we know that uh, President Trump wants to undo anything that uh, Obama had done. Those are those were the four guidelines that uh, led to that talk. And in that sense, I think all four are impractical because praising Israel to the skies doesn't do the region much good, although perhaps in the Secretary of State's mind, it is good because it enhances relations between some Arab countries and Israel, which is what it wants to see. It alienates people's political attention from Israel-Palestine, which is what the administration also wants to do. It also wants to condemn Iran. So anything that Iran does is wrong, not only in terms of the nuclear deal, but in terms of where Iran is and what its fingerprints are in places like Iraq, Syria and Lebanon. Yemen as well, I suppose. And it doesn't want to talk about human rights because American policy at the moment is not all about ethical and moral issues. It's all about deals. And it doesn't like Obama because Obama is in some way, although he was also quite ineffective in many ways, he's an antithetical example of what Trump is today. So just keep in mind, uh, James, and that is Trump's mantra is America first. And America first pretty much summarizes all these points that the Secretary of State evoked and invoked, I suppose. And if I tell you one thing, uh, to sum it up, he said this at the AUC. Today, a few days later, ask most people, what do they remember of the talk? Absolutely nothing, because it was totally 
uh, impression unfriendly and totally insignificant. And if you looked at the number of people who were in the room listening to him, you would see that it was only the elitocracy and the people who are in places of power that were there. Anybody else was not invited uh, to be part of that uh, talk. So I'm afraid that uh, I'm not terribly impressed uh, by what U.S. Secretary of State did, but it was, I suppose, his way of trying to reassure America's allies, as some Arab countries and Gulf countries are considered, to reassure them that America, despite withdrawals from Syria and despite all the reverses that are happening, including what might or might not happen to the president in Washington, D.C., that America stands by its allies. And I've always taken one of the lessons I've learned across many, many years of trying to make sense of politics in the MENA and Gulf regions is that when somebody says, we want to reassure you that we stand by our allies, the very opposite is actually what manifests itself. Now, it's funny because, as I say... Sorry, that was a very long answer to your question, James, but sometimes I'm tempted to be rather prolix. Well, you know, you mentioned deals in there. You and I have talked about the so-called, which has gone quiet, deal of the century, uh, single-state solution. The, what, you know, what is the state of the two-state solution? Is it dead or dying? And interestingly... Well, they're trying to kill it. It's neither dead nor dying, but there's definitely there are many people who are trying to terminal, bury it. Terminal. Perhaps. Terminate it. That's mm. very... Very nice Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, <laughs> way of looking at it. But interestingly, during the, the time we haven't spoke over the Christmas period, you know, with the business of Australia recognising West Jerusalem as the, um, you know, Israel's capital, one, one quote struck me from Scott Morrison, the Australian Prime Minister. When asked about the two-state solution, I believe he said that a rancid stalemate has emerged. So uh, people aren't really offering any solutions. Even when they make these big proclamations, they're just sort of throwing their hands up as to the stalemate and waiting for a peace plan to be put forward, for instance, in, in the case of Israel-Palestine. You know, and, and looking at some of the other things I brought up in the introduction, such as you know the, the Qatar crisis and so forth, it seems to me that the region, as is often the way, is suffering from some paralysis, this sort of rancid stalemate, as Morrison put it. Would you agree? Well, I suppose uh, the stalemate there certainly is in many ways. There is a stalemate when it comes to the Israel-Palestine conflict, and that's a deliberate stalemate. There is a stalemate in terms of the embargo uh, by uh, three Gulf countries against Qatar, and that's also a deliberate stalemate. Uh, Yemen is in a bit of a stalemate with some sparks of hope, but that also is because there are so many uh, proxy countries that have interest in that wretched country's uh, future because the poor Yemenis are the people who are suffering. All you need to do is just Google ICRC, Google Save the Children, Google any of those organizations that are really interested in people rather than in political games, and you will see about the level of suffering of Yemen is as a result of this war that was not necessary to happen and that was one, in my opinion, one of the uh, unnecessary boastful acts of the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. So in a sense, stalemates there are all across the region in some way or other. I would even call Idlib in Syria as being a stalemate, although the Turks and the Russians are now trying to set up another meeting to see what happens there. And that is also a very interesting thing for our listeners because Idlib is where all the radicals of all different hues and persuasions were all thrown in there when the rest of uh, 
Syria was being rid or cleansed of those radical forces. So basically, you've got them all there now. And the question is, what happens if you're going to take uh, Idlib back? What happens to all these people in there? Because they're busy fighting each other anyway. So if the uh, Syrian army with Russian air power is going to go in there and get uh, Idlib back, how would Turkey react and where would all these people go? Are they all going to run into Turkey again? That's a, a moot question I put there to our listeners. But uh, rancid, I don't know about uh, rancid. The Australian thing, I dismiss it as being basically the Australians trying to be tough and trying to tell the uh, Trump and the U.S. administration that they're so good. But my, in my reaction to that, if they want to put their embassy in West Jerusalem, fine, because West Jerusalem was outside the negotiations during the last uh, two, three decades, whatever negotiations there actually were because post-Oslo, that is rancid because nothing has happened. But there are three things. Some people still hope two-state solution, that it will come back again. Uh, well, I don't know whether it will, but there are other people who are also purists and who are saying, no, 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 Palestine is the whole of historical Palestine post the British mandate, and therefore uh, we should get it all back. If you talk to some Hamas people in Gaza, that's what they probably think, and that also, I think, is a pie in the sky. Uh, the other point is, though, that if you take the two-state solution and the one-state solution, the binational and the two-state solution, I think both of them are actually, at the moment, as things are, uh, pies in the sky, because neither one of them is, in my opinion, realizable. And possible. What is happening, though, on the ground with grassroots organizations, with NGOs, with even uh, churches uh, there that are still there in Bethlehem, in Ramallah, in Jerusalem, elsewhere, is that people are increasingly more talking about a one-state solution where Palestinians and Israelis live together. And the Israelis, by this policy of refusing to acknowledge that there is an occupation that has to be dealt with, are... Uh, feeding into the argument of a one-state solution, and that to me doesn't mean one state with two or three different levels of rights in the country, so Israeli Jews have best rights and uh, Palestinian Arabs are number two or the ones in the West Bank are number three. If you're going to have a one state where everybody is equal to everybody else, well, good luck, because I'd like to see how that sits comfortably with Prime Minister Netanyahu, who's about to fight another general election, how it sits with his views of the Jewishness of the Israeli state. And it's somewhat of a moot point, you know, bringing up the, the Australia proclamation as such, because I believe, you know, they'd only move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in the event of a peace agreement. And I think from what you've just said, that might be a rather long way away. That is a bit of a long wait at the moment. And I don't think, I mean, everything that is happening in the geopolitics of the region indicates that people are trying to put Palestine on a back burner and to sort of think of other things because at the moment uh, the U.S. administration is only interested in one bogeyman and that is Iran and therefore everything that is happening is viewed from the prism of what about Iran this, what about Iran that and it's trying to create this pan-Arab force in itself I think a joke because it's a concept that doesn't work uh, it's trying to push Arab countries uh, to, uh, to mount even a firmer stand uh, against Iran, which also, I think, has plenty of uh, potholes in it. So uh, at the moment, Israel-Palestine is not really there. And 
uh, we see in Syria, for instance, some Arab countries, we've seen the United Arab Emirates, we've seen Bahrain, uh, maybe others will follow, who are now suddenly deciding that they have to reopen their embassies in Damascus after they left when the Arab League froze uh, Syrian membership to the to this organization. And the reason they're giving for that is they say that, well, you know what, um, Syria is now gradually going back to where they would want it to go, actually, which is no democracy, no human rights, no aspirations for the citizens, top-down rule, that we need to be there in order to be the counter-motion to Iranian influence in Syria, and that if we're there, we might be able to check that influence. Well, I've got two comments on that. The first comment is, it was tried and tested during Hafez al-Assad, Bashar al-Assad's father's time, who very brilliantly used Iranians against Arabs, and he managed to get the best of both worlds, so that didn't work. I don't think Bashar al-Assad can turn his back on Iranians now, because they were the ones on the ground with the Russians in the sky, uh, getting much of his country back. Otherwise, by now, he would have been history himself. So that's not going to work. So good luck for those who think that by going into those uh, into Damascus again and opening the embassies, they're actually going to counter Iranian influence in Syria. Besides, if that really were the argument of Gulf countries like the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, then my question is, why would you embargo and boycott Qatar as a member of the Gulf Cooperation Council and pressure Qatar to go and deal much more closely with Turkey and to a lesser extent with Iran if your whole aim is to counter Iranian influence. Open channels of communication with Qatar. Get Qatar back in the fold on an equal basis with the other five. Don't boss it around. They're independent sovereign states. Then that's another way of countering Iranian influence. And if we are really so worried about Iran, let me remind our listeners that the United Arab Emirates has far more economic interests with uh, Iran than do any of the other GCC countries. So all this posturing, all these big words, all these grandiloquent statements, that you call proclamations, they're a bunch of nonsense as far as I'm concerned. Just when I think it can't get more complicated. (laughs) Oh, my word. Well, you've segued twice now nicely into Syria. I was going to ask you specifically, but you've covered an awful lot of ground there. The only thing I suppose I do want to draw back to about that, in light of what you've said about Iranian influence and whether people think they're countering that or not or what their particular interest might be, I do tend to look at Syria as being the sort of ultimate chess game a bit between Russia and America, looking at, you know, if you like, dictating from on high. What was your opinion of the withdrawal of the troops then and the declaration that ISIS Daesh has been defeated in in Syria? Because if you want to quell Iranian influence, is that not a slightly strange thing to do on the part of America? Well, that's the that's the reason why Matheson and a whole host of American politicians and bureaucrats resigned as a result of uh, President Trump's whimsical uh, notion. It was so whimsical that his officials started backpedaling furiously after that, whether it's Bolton, whether it's uh, Pompeo, whether it's others. But it became quite clear that he says one thing today, he says another thing tomorrow. So it started with an immediate withdrawal, then it turned into a slow withdrawal, then it turned into a gradual withdrawal, then it turned into, well, that withdrawal will not happen now until we have an agreement with Turkey. We're talking about a superpower, talking about 2,000 troops that are in the north of uh, uh, Syria. So in that sense, 
instance, I take that a little bit with a pinch of salt. But what I would also slightly quibble with you over is that when you say that uh, Syria is a playing field, as it were, between uh, Russia and the United States, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. I think that as far as the American administration is concerned, they've given Syria to the to the Russians, and all they're mm. hoping for is that the Russians would actually get rid of the Iranians themselves or help get rid of the Iranians, because there's no love lost between the two, but both of them are basically at the moment working together because that's what realities on the ground dictate. However, I also think that the Russians and Putin particularly is not enamored with the idea of staying in uh, Syria forever and ever. He just wants to make sure that Syria goes back to where it was during the Cold War, going back to your initial expression, hot region Cold War, uh, was very much an ally of the Soviet Union at the time. And it wants to make sure that it's got its port, it's got its naval facilities there, it's got its influence there. And then it doesn't want to stay there in case there is another attack and some more Russians die in Syria. Putin is not ready for that. So in a sense, I think as far as the Trump administration is concerned, they've given Syria to to Russia. And it's a question of these are my uh, countries, these are other people's countries. So going back, James, to what you said about the Carnegie Scholar, I would agree with him in the sense that uh, Russia has an interest in Syria, but Russia does not necessarily think that it can compete with America and American power, be that military or economic, across the whole region, nor do I think that Russia and Putin have any necessary inclination uh, to do that. But what is happening uh, by the nature of things is that the erratic policies of the U.S. Trump administration are such that uh, they are creating black spaces across the whole region where no Arab ruler is actually sure that they can trust what the Americans are saying anymore for the simple reason that from day to day, what they're saying, their statements change. And therefore, those are creating black holes or opportunities for the Russians to sort of come in and once again step into a region that they were kicked out of primarily because after uh, the Soviet Union became the Russian Federation, economically it was decrepit, it was on its knees, and therefore it needed to build itself up. Now Putin is beginning to give vent to his more uh, sort of imperious qualities and politics, and that's part of what it's doing. But if you look at the moment, at what's happening, whether by Russia or America in the region, and you look at what's happening by their proxies, the Emiratis, the Saudis, the uh, Egyptians, the other countries, you would see that uh, in any of those countries you look at from North Africa uh, to the Middle East, to the Gulf, Uh, America still has much more of a hold. Let us see what's going to happen uh, in another two years' time if Trump is still there until the next presidential elections. Now, I'm going to move on to 2019 being a year of tolerance in a second. But before I do that, I just wanted to ask you quickly about Iraq, because I've got to be honest, it's sort of fallen off my radar a bit. I feel a bit guilty about that. But what's the the latest? What's happening in Iraq at the moment? Well, what's happening in Iraq at the moment is that, uh, well, we saw what happened in Basra and in the south where there were massive demonstrations, huge demonstrations 
uh, in summer, in late summer, because uh, the south of, of Iraq is where you have most of the oil fields and most of the income, and yet people didn't have electricity, they didn't have air conditioning working, they didn't have anything, and the people finally were fed up, and they said enough is enough, and they came out in masses, which I think took the Iraqi government a little bit by surprise. And it also validates another point. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm mixing apples and oranges, James, but it validates another point I've made often enough is that those who think that the seeds for the Arab Spring of 2010-2011 have been completely burnt, destroyed by the counter-revolutionary forces that took over and pumped so much money in order to shut down any aspirations of the Arab peoples across this whole massive region, that they're wrong because all the symptoms that led to the uprisings in 2010-11 and onward are still there if they've not been even more exacerbated. And therefore, uh, that does not augur well for the future. But that's for another podcast, another time if we're both alive. At the moment, what I would suggest is that Iraq is desperately trying to get its act together. The problem is, yet again, there is so much Iranian influence. The Americans are also in there. And the Iraqi government is so much itself divided that it can't yet get a government that is functional. In fact, the only thing that is wonderful about uh, Iraq is its president. Mm. Its president is a wonderful person, a, a, a great guy who's doing his level best to try and promote a better image of Iraq. He's going and visiting people. People are coming and visiting him. Only a couple of days ago, the King of Jordan uh, was in Baghdad, uh, first time in a decade that he'd gone there. Last time was in 2008. So there is a certain element of openness. And the whole point about Iraq, I mean, uh, other than the rivalries within the Iraqis themselves, who gets into power and who doesn't get into power, because who gets into power makes more money. So it's a very sarcastic comment to make, but it's true. However, uh, the, the, the thing also there is uh, the Arabs want to regain, a little bit like Syria, they want to regain back uh, Iraq into the Arab fold. The Iranians don't want to do that. Uh, they want to keep their influence in Iraq. So it's basically being played out in a political tug of war that is not making that country any better. And of course, the Kurds were massively defeated in their referendum recently when they tried to gain independence, another silly aspiration of the Kurds. The Kurds are brilliant when it comes to causes, absolutely pathetic when it comes into implementing them. So in a sense, the Iraq is still trying to uh, catch its breath. I don't think it's yet caught it. And actually, Harry, regionally, talking about a, uh, a country with, with a big, a large number of uh, Christians, 35%, Lebanon, is that still at an impasse? Is that there's, there's no government, is there? Lebanon is still very much at an impasse. Eight, nine months after the elections and the prime minister-designate Sheikh Saad al-Hariri is still desperately trying to form a government. Every time we come close to saying, OK, we've cracked this one, something happens and it does not work. My two cents worth of uh, analysis on that, James, <laughs> is that it's not working not because uh, the prime minister designate cannot do it, but because there are forces that are preventing the formation of a government because everybody is trying to influence Lebanon. There are forces in there that want Lebanon to be a free, independent uh, country, not beholden to any uh, power in 
the region, be that Syria, be that Iran, be that Saudi Arabia, be that any of those. And there are other powers who desperately want to uh, keep Lebanon tied uh, to some of those countries. And there is another tug of war happening there. And unfortunately, what is happening in uh, Lebanon and the latest spat between Libya and Lebanon is an example of that where, by the way, just for our listeners to know why I'm prattling on about Libya in Lebanon, it's because there is a an economic and social development summit that is going to take place in Lebanon. Summit is a big word anyway, <laughs> uh, in Lebanon this uh, weekend. And uh, the, what uh, the Arab League is calling for it, the Arab League are the people inviting, Lebanon is hosting, and some factions in Lebanon objected to Libya being invited because of the disappearance of the Imam Musa al-Sadr uh, some four uh, decades ago, uh, who's believed to have been snatched and kidnapped and imprisoned, perhaps even killed in Libya. He would be about 90 now if he's still alive. And therefore, they say, how can we invite Libya when they're holding our imam, who was uh, the first, the founder of one of the very powerful uh, militias in the country? And what some of the uh, members of this, uh, one of the Shiite factions in Lebanon did, is uh, climb up one of the flagpoles, bring down the Libyan uh, flag in protest to Libya being considered for in, an invitation to the summit and replacing it with their own uh, banner. And of course, Libya was outraged and Lebanon reacted and it's two broken countries uh, trying to not displease each other too much. And unfortunate Lebanon. Lebanon is a country I love dearly. It's a beautiful country. As we have said you and I many times before, it used to be called the Paris or the Switzerland of the Middle East. And now... Blimey, it, its economy is basically on the cliff edge. Mm. And for me, they don't have a government. Fine, Lebanon, perhaps uh, its strength is not having a government because everybody governs, therefore nobody governs. But <laughs> its real strength, which is keeping uh, Lebanon together, it's, is central bank, its monies. And if something happens for that to fall, then I'm afraid it's going to be a meltdown, and that's a meltdown for Christians, but it's also a meltdown for all the others, Sunnis, Druze, uh, Shias, all put together. I love the way I can just name drop a country and almost go, Harry, go. <laughs> yes, it looks like I'm an, a robot. You just press the button and words come out. I like that. We could do with more of that. Sorry, listeners, if I'm boring you with too many words at quite a fast speed. Well, you know what we can do? We can time code this podcast slightly. So if somebody wants to jump into the situation in Lebanon, they, and I'm not saying they should skip over you, Harry. You know that. No, 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 no. I'm, <laughs> I'm not insulted at all, uh, James. I like you. We have a very good working relationship uh, other than being friends. So whichever way you want to present this podcast is fine by me. I'm just a little bit fed up because I have... Uh, I'm becoming increasingly more of a cynic when I look at the dark forces that are playing out in the region and how the ultimate victims of these dark forces are not the forces themselves or their um, uh, layered pockets of money and influence, but the ordinary human beings yeah. who are really, really uh, getting a bad deal in most of those countries. Not all, but most of those countries. I've still got my favorites. Well, it's funny because I found this you know, this well over half an hour now of our chat, 
it is a bit depressing and it can break it down into sections it, so we don't overwhelm our listeners yeah quite <laughs> but but it, it can, you know you can get despondent you can think of it as like the power players all fighting in the playground where where the people are harnessed below without a say without a voice and you mentioned how you know if people think that the the sentiment surrounding what was then called the arab spring has gone away the aspirations of the people across the region it's interesting that you say that you know there might be another thing coming having already said that in in syria we're almost going full circle to to before that and bottling the people up again and looking at iraq and you know one could be quite depressed about the fact that we've almost gone through since you and i started broadcasting you know that the sort of if you like optimistic and, and slightly cautious optimism of the will of the people being heard, at least to, to a certain extent, to quite a depressing get back in your box. You're absolutely right. I mean, there was a cautious optimism. At some stage, it was even an incautious optimism because I mm. was really hopeful that something will change. And then, of course, the direction of the winds changed and uh, uh, we are where we are, which is even worse than what it was in 2010, 2011, when it, when it all erupted in some of those countries. But what is also also interesting there just to be to lift the intellectual level of this discourse as well James is to say that if you look at some of the books that are coming out soon or have just come out or will come out from American universities and from elsewhere talking about the Arab world and talking about the debates that took place amongst intellectuals and thinkers before the eruption of those Arab springs across some of the countries, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, etc., and then uh, Yemen and Syria, and what have you. It also tried in some other countries like Morocco, but they were wise enough to know how to contain it at the moment. If you look at some of those books that are coming, they're talking about the debates that took place in those Arab countries amongst intellectuals and thinkers. For instance, the debates that took place in Egypt, the debates that took place in Syria, and the idea of how those debates coincided with a sense of enlightenment in the Arab world and the Arab peoples. You read those books, whether they're already out or will be out, there are some scholars who are uh, brilliant and who are writing about those issues. If you know a little bit about the region, you will say, wow, those issues that they were debating before 2010, 2011 are very much still there. Mm. And that makes me think that the human being, any human being, no matter, use a very nice word there, harnessed, you said, the people, uh, they're more than harnessed, they're squashed. They're considered as cannon fodder. They're basically people who are there to execute. You said something very nice. I just tell you one word and you start uh, blurting out 10 minutes of uh, your own words. (laughs) These people are thought of as automatons. They are only allowed to do what the regimes allow them to do. Anything more than that. And they're not allowed. Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Elsewhere, in many of those countries, that is the reality. And the human being is a free spirit, born free. And I can't for the life of me, I might not see it, I might be dead six feet under before any of this happens again. But I cannot believe that the day will not come when those people who are doing 
all this to the Arab people who are conning the Arab people because there are some people who are very happy, population-wise, who are very happy because all this military force which is laying down the law so nobody dares talk. Oh, there is security. Yes, but security at what, at what uh, risk? Is it security that means that you sell out your own dignity, you sell out your own worth, your own appreciation, that you start importing ideas, whether it is peace, security, getting rid of radicals, getting rid of terrorists, uh, introducing an age of tolerance, bringing important religious or political people into the region to show that we are an open region. We are in full flow, guys. What more do you want? Open for business. Open for business. Yes, exactly. Open for business. And when you say open for business, of course, you give President Trump his biggest thrills. Yeah. Well, look, there was much more I wanted to talk about, but we're, we're hitting the 40 minute mark now. So I think we must save things for future podcasts. But I want to finish on a lighter note. Now, unfortunately, you on tr- a lighter note, a much, much lighter. <laughs> note. All right. And, and you tried. To, I welcome that. You tried to raise the academic level of this conversation. You're bringing it down again. I am. But you know what? You don't even know how far <laughs> this piece of paper. Now, you've seen this in front of me, haven't you? Yes. You don't know what it is, do you? No, it's just like an envelope. Yes, well, actually, actually, it's a piece of history because this is one of your tweets. Wow. And I love your tweets. They take my uh, understanding of the region and other things. I won't mention Brexit again. We'll be off. We'll be off. We'll be off on the way Um, to to a higher plane. But this one, this one conjured up images. I'm not sure they're good ones, but it it conjured up images and it made me smile. So I'd like to finish with it. Well, I'm glad you you smiled, but conjured up images. Now I'm dreading you reading the tweet. This is going to paint pictures in the minds of our listeners. This tweet, not very long ago, 12th of January, 7.59am. So I know what you wake up and think about. (laughs) You're worried now, aren't you? Right. I'm I'm going to read this, if I may. Please. It's in the public domain. It is. You can find it, listeners. At Harry Hagopian. Right. I must admit, freely and unabashedly too, that I had a huge crush on this woman when I was still in shorts... That's the visual bit. I can see you in shorts, Sarah. <laughs> and with only a gurgling hint of hormones. Love it. Bit of alliteration. Smiley face, obviously. D- which lady... Come on, you know now, don't you? Of course which, which I know. We're talking we about talk- uh, Olivia Newton-John. We are. <laughs> and you show, me, you show me on the piece of paper her picture underneath my tweet. I think she looks very good for her age. She does look very well uh, for her age. And Olivia Newton-John, I did have a crush on her. I did have a big, massive crush on her. And Olivia Newton-John is not only a brilliant singer as far as I'm, I'm concerned, and also she became an actress, but she's a very, very strong woman because she's had two very, very hard battles with breast cancer so I say to her as I say to all women and all people afflicted with such uh, mishaps and diseases good on you but yes uh, I will not deny it and you can lower the level of this conversation as much as you want but Olivia Newton-John for me will still remain Olivia Newton-John and for those who are 30 and younger they might now be wondering who in the dickens is he talking about (laughs) oh tell tell me more tell me more wow that was a nice ending to it you like that don't you no I mean I have to say Harry on on if you if we want to make a little serious point it is called her new memoir which will be out mid-march there you go everyone if you want an antidote to brexit you can get olivia newton john's uh, memoirs don't stop believing and maybe 
that's the sort of mantra we need to hold for the Middle East, North you Africa. You know, I, I like some of your associations. I like some of your associations, particularly that self-satisfied grin you now have that you scored a point at the end, which you certainly did. Don't stop believing. I don't stop believing. I mean, as I said, I might not be around to see it, but I still believe that the day will come when despots and dictators and people who use human beings as cheap chattel will actually have their day of reckoning. It didn't happen before. It will happen uh, again soon. So, yes, Olivia Newton-John, don't stop believing, and hot region, hot wars. Hot sea. You didn't even accept my working title for this podcast. You know, I, I must have had about three minutes of chat. And Harry, we need you. We need your analysis. We've enjoyed it very much. Um, hopefully we'll speak before post-Brexit Britain, I do hope. Well, that's not that's not a foregone well, conclusion. Well, post-Brexit Britain, Britain more or less coincides, depending on when the exit happens, if we don't have an extension or some more surprises. But that's going to happen at the end of uh, uh, March, technically mm. speaking at least. And uh, Easter comes uh, before the end of April. So somewhere along that time, if in your busy life you can find the time for us to have another uh, chat, why not? And next time I will try to keep your headline as the valid one for the podcast. Well, I hope so. <laughs> Joe, you, know, you remind me of me a little bit. I don't know how that makes you feel. But every time I speak to my parents, I am the glasses half empty man. I'm like, oh, I might not be alive at 50. I'm not going to make 50, which, of course, really annoys my parents when I keep coming out with that sort of thing. But you've said twice on this podcast, I might not be alive when. I mean, neither, neither of us might be alive when there's a solution. That is absolutely true. Now, you're going into an epistemological discussion. <laughs> we won't take our listeners there. Fatalistic, but what, but what we'll say is that I'm neither having a half full or a half empty glass conversation. Okay. I'm having a realistic conversation. This is not going to happen in the next five years. It's going to take quite a while until the it brews over again. And therefore, yes, fatalistic is uh, one way of putting it. But I'm unimportant. I'm insignificant. I'm just somebody who has an enjoyable time talking to you. What matters are those human beings, men, women and kids across the whole Middle East, North Africa and Gulf region. This sounds cheesy, but never mind. We did so many different things. Let's end on that cheesy high note. That's not-